0: Revelation chapter 4. We've been kind of parked out in chapter 4 for a while and I don't make an apology to that because chapter 4 really begins a, a new section in the book of Revelation. If you remember in uh, Revelation chapter 1 verses 19, this is all review for you, but it gives the outline, if you will, of the book because the Lord told John, he says, um, He told him to write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. And that word, that phrase after this is the Greek phrase, tauta. It means after these things. And, uh, and so when we look at that outline, we see that in the very first chapter, John did write those things which he saw because he saw the glorified Jesus Christ in his, in his glorified state in heaven. And uh, the state that we see him there reminds us of other areas in the scripture where the saints have seen God and, and some of the similar pictures and visualizations are all there because it's true. It's who he is. And so John wrote the things which he saw. And then he wrote the things which are, which at that time in history, in 95 AD, when this book was written there in the Isle of Patmos, as he was out there serving time for the crime that he committed, which was sharing the love of God and preaching the word of God, that was his crime. He was out there, and he and, and so the things that were, the things that are at that time, was the beginning of the church. The church age had started on the day of Pentecost, and the church age is still going. We are still in the church age until the rapture of the church, which could occur at any time. And so he says, write the things which you have seen, which he did in chapter 1. And he says, write the things which are, which we know are chapters 2 and 3. In the last several couple of months, we've been looking at those seven churches of Revelation. And that encompasses the church age. But here in chapter 4, it says something interesting. After these things, I saw a door. Isn't that what it says? After these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice, which I heard, was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Metatauta. Things that must take place after what? After what things? Well, the things that were just previously discussed, and what were they? those things? Those were the seven churches, encompassing the church age in its totality, of which we are still a part again until the rapture. But notice that a door was open, and the voice said to him, Jesus spoke to him, and he says, Come up here. And here we have a picture of the rapture of the church. And John, being a member of the church as well, he is caught up into glory. Just as we will be caught up to glory. We looked at that. We spent a whole Sunday just talking about the rapture of the church. How we will be violently snatched up off the earth. And don't let that word violently snatched up off the earth you know, freak you out. Because it just means literally raptus. It means we're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. First Corinthians 15 tells us that. Then those who are dead in Christ will rise first. They will be given a new body. And then we, which are alive and remain, we will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. And we will be caught up together to meet the Lord where? In the air. That is the rapture of the church. Don't ever get that confused with the second coming of Jesus. Because when he comes back to earth, we are going to be coming with him. And that that period of time in between we call the great tribulation. Tribulation. Chapter 6 through 19 is what we call the Great Tribulation Period. It's a, a period not of persecution so much as it is God's wrath being poured out upon a world that is rejected, his only means of salvation, which is Jesus Christ. Are you a believer in Jesus this morning? I look out and I recognize most of you, and I know that you are. But there are some of you I haven't seen. And you know, there's some online that perhaps haven't given their heart to Christ. Folks, today is the day. Do not wait another day. The signs have been all around us for many years, and we've been lulled to sleep by our culture. We've been lulled to sleep by many things, but we can afford no longer to be asleep. We must awaken. We must awaken. We ask God to revive us. Now, maybe you're in that place where you're like, oh, I don't really need to be revived. Well, praise the Lord. Come and touch me. Lay hands on me. I run my throat, preferably. Um, you know, and, and, and let's, let's ask the Lord again. Lord, do it again. Whatever you want to do, we want to be available to you. Help us, Lord. And so that period in between the great tribulation, which the church will not go through, because remember, from your perspective looking at me, the rapture can occur at any time, and that ends the church age. And then we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And then Revelation 6 through 19 is the great tribulation period, a time of great, God's great wrath upon a world that has rejected him. And at the end of that, Jesus comes back physically to earth with all the saints with him. And we will be with him and he will rule and reign from Jerusalem on this physical earth for a thousand years. It's called the millennium. We will rule and reign with him. And then it gets even better because at the end of that thousand year, what does it say? That a new heavens and a new earth will be created. This current heavens and this current earth will dissolve in fervent heat. A new heavens and a new earth and that is the eternal state. That is where we will be for the rest of our days into eternity Walking on streets of gold that are so fine and purified, they are clear. Have you ever seen gold so refined that it's clear? You're gonna. (laughs) And it's gonna be more expensive. If we were to have something like that on the earth today, oh my. And God says, you're gonna walk on that. Do you believe it? Do you? Not because I say it, not because countless of other pastors and saints and Bible teachers Bible scholars have said it. Do you believe it because the Lord has shown it to us? Do you believe what he says is true? I hope you do, because that will encourage your faith. That will encourage your faith. And so now we have this chapter. I've talked about chapters 6 through 19, but what about chapters 4 and 5 that we're looking at right now? Certainly it speaks of the rapture of the church. And where is the church at the rapture. In heaven, where is Jesus at the rapture of the church? He never set foot on earth at that point. He's still in heaven right now. Isn't that what he told his disciples in John chapter 14? He says, I go, he says, do not be afraid. You know, I'm coming to receive you unto myself, that where I am, you you may also be. Wasn't that the promise in John chapter 4? It was. So we're going to be caught up with him. We will see him face to face. And we're in heaven with him. So wherever Jesus is, that's where we're going to be after the rapture. And we will be with him forever. And when he comes back to the earth, we will come back with him. But this interim in between, chapters 4 and 5, still yet before us in history, is in heaven. And I love the fact that chapter 4 and 5 are there, Because it describes to us this heavenly throne room, this heavenly scene. And I would encourage you to let your heart be raptured, pun intended. Let your heart be raptured with that thought right now. Because before all hell breaks loose on this earth, God sees fit to show us glory. He sees fit to show us the throne room of God, which puts in perspective everything that has happened before and everything that is coming upon the earth. Folks, do you understand that the things that are happening have just happened and we're still coming out of it? Do you realize these things are just, they're little signs, guideposts. The world is being prepared. The world is being prepared for a new world order. (laughs) And the new world order is slowly going to be in the clutch of the Antichrist, the man of sin. The Bible talks a lot about him and his career, yet future to us. And God is going to pour out his wrath on his kingdom during that seven-year period known as the Great Tribulation. It's known as Daniel's 70th week. It's also known as Jacob's Trouble You and I will not be here during that time, for we would point him out very clearly because we know the word of God. But once the church is removed, guess what? A lot of the light, 90%, I don't know the percentage, but a great deal of the light of this world is going to vanish and everything is going to flood in like a tsunami. It's going to happen very quickly, folks. And we're seeing a foretaste of it now. Do, Do you see it? Are your eyes open to see the things that are coming? Does it surprise you? Is it discouraging? Yes, it is. Because there's a part of me that really wants things to work out and for things to get better. But things may not get better. In fact, what I read in my Bibles tells me that things aren't necessarily going to get better. So what does that mean to us? That means that we better get our hearts and our minds focused on him. And focused on what he wants us to do. Because he is coming soon. Do you know it? Do you believe it? He's coming. Are you excited? You know, I was talking to Pastor Jeff recently, just a few days ago, and I was telling him how excited I was to, for the rapture. I really am. I'm excited. And then I made the comment, I, and I, I said, you know, I feel kind of guilty, you know, saying that, because to me it's kind of selfish. And he says, no. He says, don't. And I really loved his response. He says, no, don't, don't feel uh, sheepish about that at all. Don't feel ashamed that you want to go. Because guess what? That's what the Lord has been talking about all this time. He wants to see us just as much as we want to see him. And guess what? Just because the church is removed doesn't mean that people aren't going to get saved. Is it going to be extremely difficult? Is it going to be nigh impossible? Pretty close, but it can happen. Because there are indications, even during the great tribulation period, there will be people who will give their heart to the Lord, but it's going to cost them greater and greater and greater than it does for any of us now. And so it's possible. So we are not the only light, right? Because the Bible says that God's going to send an angel in the tribulation period proclaiming the news of the everlasting gospel. Now, would he do that if there was no hope for people? Even still, no, he wouldn't. So there is still hope. But do you want to wait? <laughs> do you want to wait for that time and, and think that you're going to have the guts? You're going to have the fortitude? You're going to, you're, are you going to, do you think that you're beyond being deceived? Because when that time comes, the Bible says there's going to be a great deception. That's never a. I mean, have you ever been deceived before? The deception that's coming is so great. It is going to be so great. Every fabric in a person's body is going to be freaking out. And every, being, every part of a person's being is going to want to go into this program that the Antichrist is going to have for them. He's going to have solutions. He's going to show things. Visually, he's going to be able to do miracles. The Bible even says he's going to be given all power. That's scary. He's going to be so convincing that the world's going to go, this is the Messiah. And all those people who the Lord or who somebody took that are off the planet, they've been taken to judgment. And that's you and I. (laughs) That's what they may think. And they're going to think their Messiah is present and they will do anything for him. They'll be glad to stand in line like you've been doing. at tops and Wegmans standing in line and everything standing in line, waiting, anxious, wanting to get toilet paper. <laughs> Remember that whole thing? When this whole thing started? So things are, are changing. And I would have you be prepared. And that's why we, it just so happens we're reading through the book of Revelation. But again, I love the fact that we're looking at these two chapters now because it really just gives us a glimpse of glory. It gives us a glimpse. And, and the Lord is so gracious. He wants to fill the church's heart with the things of heaven. That our habitation is not here on the earth, but it is in glory. And I'm looking forward to that, aren't you? And I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not, I'm not, I don't feel guilty about saying it. I want to see Jesus. Do you want to see Jesus? I can't wait. I can't wait. So notice, with me, chapter, uh, you know, chapter four, it says, you know, after this I I looked and behold the door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me. Saying, Come up here, I will show you things which must take place after this. And immediately I was in the spirit. And behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he sat there was like a jasper. Uh, Jasper, it could be a diamond, it's a very clear, very hard adamant stone, and a sardius stone, which is a red blood stone in appearance. And we looked at that last week, just the symbolic nature of that. And there was a rainbow, a rainbow. I love the fact that the, the rainbow is a promise, isn't it? And from Revel, or on Genesis chapter 9, God's promise to the earth that he would not flood the earth again. And yet a, a group, the homosexual community, has hijacked the rainbow. And I say the church redeemed the rainbow. Let's take it back. <laughs> it doesn't, you know, And pray for them because they're angry. They want us to accept everything. They want us to accept sin. Why should we accept sin in our own lives, much less theirs? They are as much of an object of God's love as you and I are, right? God does not delight in the death of the wicked, but if they do not turn from their sin, they will go to hell, along with every other sinner who does not repent. It doesn't matter the sin. Sin is sin. Whether you're a homosexual or whether you are a a heterosexual fornicator, it doesn't matter. All sin leads to death unless it's repented of, and then guess what? We have this wonderful grace and mercy of Jesus. I love that. Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. I already got to that, sorry, excuse me. So verse 4, around the throne were 24 thrones, and on thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. We looked at last week who these 24 elders are. We can't be too entirely dogmatic about it, but we know one thing, that they are not angels. If you look at Revelation 7, verse 11, it, it delineates the difference between the elders, the angels, and these four living creatures. Therefore, these elders, who are they? We believe that they are just nothing more than a representative of the church, Jew and Gentile, together, the redeemed a representative of the collective redeemed of the church. We believe that that's who these 24 elders are. They were clothed with white robes. They had crowns of gold on their heads, and from the and, and from the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Isn't this imagery wonderful? And I love the fact that, you know, John here is seeing these sights. He's caught up in the spirit, if you will. He's being transported. Physically, his body was on Patmos in the Aegean Sea. But spiritually, the Lord was able to take him to the time of the end and show him things that are in heaven and the things which are going to occur after these things, which we know is chapter 4 through chapter 19. Actually, through the rest of the whole entire book of Revelation. That's the last section of the book. Is chapter 4 to the end, after these things, because we're still living in the church age. But seven lamps of fire, I love the imagery, the language struggles to, to, to describe these things. Isn't it wonderful when, you, when you're striving for a word, when you experience something Maybe you've seen something, maybe you've experienced something physically The words break down and sometimes it's hard to describe. Have you ever been so overwrought with emotion and your spouse or a friend comes and says, hey, what's wrong? And you're like, I can't even talk about it because I don't even know what's going on inside of me. Have you ever had that? You know, to me, that's one of the nice things about having a prayer language, having the gift of tongues, if you have that gift, is going before the Lord on your knees privately, and you, can't, you don't even know what's going inside. You can't even describe it, but you've got this heavy burden. There's, it's such a mixture of so many things. You, you're like, Lord, I can't even describe what I'm feeling, and so you just let it go. I don't have that gift. I don't believe. But I know people who do. And praise the Lord if you have it. But notice as we get into verse 6, and hopefully we'll finish the chapter today, um, but I want to encourage you as we get into this, you're going to see that everything in the Bible, all this imagery, all these symbols are all there by design, and they're not by happenstance. They are there for a reason, for a purpose, because God does not waste ink on the page. Everything that we have in the word of God is not suggestions. It's not like a Ford Motor Company when they make a Ford. They don't put extra parts on the car. In fact, every single nut and bolt is scrutinized. And they try to make them cheaper, hopefully not on Ford trucks, but they make them cheaper so they can make more money on per per car, per volume over the thousands of cars that they make. Right? They do, they, they, you know, they, but even still, they don't put in spare parts. Neither does the word of God. Neither, neither does God put in things in the word of God that aren't there by design for a purpose, a reason, and I love that. God says what he means, and he means what he says. And because he is God, there is no need for him to hide anything from us. He gives us what we need. He gives us what we need enough to encourage our faith. And he doesn't deem it necessary to give us the bigger, the, the, all the minutia of the bigger picture. He doesn't give us it all. And the Bible, especially in Revelation, is trying to portray things that really defy language. And I want you to remember something about symbols, because we're going to see a lot of them in this chapter and going forward. A symbol is always less than the reality. Do you understand? A symbol is always less than the reality, I give a symbol to, well, it's like this. You've heard it in English class, it's like a simile. Well, you know, when I saw it, it was kind of like this, but the symbol itself is pale in comparison to what they were trying to describe. Do you follow me? And so these symbols, even as you look at these things, let your heart be raptured in awe of this great God that we serve, the one who is over all things, the one who right now is in an innumerable host man i want that to be more of a reality in my life even right now Cause see i get so stuck on earth i get so stuck on the things the temporal things when's the last time that i when's the last time that you thought about heavenly things really think about them really read these chapters and go lord just take me away take me away I'm fed up with the rotten, filthy, awful things that I see in this world. I'm tired of the filthy and the rotten things within my own soul, God. I want to see perfection. Do you long for perfection? You've come to the right place. You've come to the right place in Christ because he is perfect. He is almighty God. Amen? Amen. I was going to say, can I get a witness? Yes, because I grew up in the South. That's right. (laughs) So... We look at verse 6. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. Notice, it was like it was like a diamond. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. You know, the sea of glass reminds me, and I would have you just write down some scriptures. I'm going to give them to you. We're just going to look at a few of them, and then we're going to go on here, okay? But just to kind of give you a, a balanced view of what we're seeing here, because again... What God puts in his word is there by design. He's either pointing us back to something that he's already revealed or he's pointing us forward to things that will, will make sense once we get there. And here he's pointing us back to Second Chronicles in chapter 4, verse 2. Second Chronicles 4, verse 2. Let me just read this to you. You don't have to go there, but I would encourage you to write it down because this is when it speaks of this laver that was in the tabernacle or in the temple. A laver was there because people needed to wash. The priests needed to wash. When they would go to the altar and they would bring that sacrifice, believe me, it was a bloody business. It was very bloody, and these priests needed to wash often, and they would have this huge laver. It was basically a big swimming pool, in a sense. 8,000 gallons of water were in this thing. 8,000. And that's where they would wash. And it gives us a glimpse of what we see here in, in the fourth chapter, in, the, in verse 6 here. Notice with me in Second Chronicles 4, verse 2. Let me read it to you. Then he made the sea of cast bronze. He, speaking of Solomon. David had given Solomon all the tools, everything he needed to build the temple. And the sea of, uh, of cast bronze was ten cubits from one brim to the other. <clears throat> Excuse me. It was completely round, its height was five cubits, and a line of 30 cubits measured its circumference, and under it was the likeness of oxen encircling it all around, ten to a cubit all the way around the sea. The oxen were cast in two rows when it was cast. It stood on twelve oxen, three looking toward the south, three looking toward the north, to the east and to the west. They all looked forward, and all their backward parts pointed inward, and it was a hand thick. So this, this sea of bronze, was a hand-breadth thick, which is very thick, very heavy, and its brim was shaped like the brim of a cup, like a lily blossom, and it contained 3,000 baths, which, according to, if you do the conversion, it's about 8,000 gallons of water. That's a pretty big swimming pool. Notice the blueprint. There was a blueprint. These things were given, again, not by happenstance. They were given by God to David and we'll look at that in a minute. But in Exodus chapter 24, what is Moses and the elders on the mountain of God? the mount uh, On the mountain, what it says? It says, Moses went up, and also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu... And the seventy of the elders of Israel, they saw the God of Israel, and it was under his feet as it were a paved work of sapphire stone, and it was like the very heavens in its clarity. So that describes this sea of glass that is before the throne, and it has its precursor even in the temple as they were with with the brass laver, the the, the cleaning, the place where they would clean this, this bath that was filled full of water. It had that appearance. And again, God is uh, painting this picture and 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 causing even the tabernacle and the temple to have elements of it that matched things in the heavens that matched things in the heavens. I love what it says in Exodus twenty-five verse eight. It says, "And let them make me a sanctuary." God says to Moses that I may dwell among them according to all that I show you. That is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all of its furnishings. Just so shall you make it. Why? Because it's the things of heaven. God is giving a taste, a foreshadowing of things yet to come. So all these things are here by design. They're not just put there because it sounds good, it sounds poetic. No, everything is there for a specific reason. And it's our joy to really find out what those things mean, right? And some of them are still unclear to us, but we can have a pretty good understanding. In Exodus 25, verse 39, concerning the gold lampstand, it says that it shall be made of a talon of gold. And he says, see to it that you make them again according to the pattern which was shown you in the mountain, Moses. There's a pattern that I've shown you. And what does it say in Exodus 26, verse 30? Concerning the tabernacle again, what does it say? You shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the mountain. Do you see the refrain? The pattern, you were shown on the mountain. The blueprint that I've already shown you, that blueprint is established because it's a very pattern like the heavens, like the throne room that we're seeing before us here. Turn with me to First Chronicles, chapter 28. Let's actually turn here, and then we'll move on. First Chronicles chapter 28, beginning in verse 11. And this is David's exhortation to Solomon after Solomon became king. David had already uh, uh, um, was able to amass all the gold, the silver, the bronze. He was able to get the blueprint from the Lord by the spirit we're going to see. And finally, on his deathbed, as he's getting very old, he tells his young son, Son, I've given you everything. I can't make this house, but you're going to make this house. And here's everything you need. I've given you everything. All the materials are here. The materials are over there. The blueprint is over there. Here are the men that are going to help you. Now get to it. i got to go. (laughs) Got to go. And he slipped off into heaven. Notice what it says, First Chronicles 28, verse 11. Then David gave his son Solomon the plans for the vestibule, its houses, its treasuries, its upper chambers, its inner chambers, and the place of the mercy seat, and the plans for all that he had by the Spirit. Underline verse 12. Of the verse, of the course of the house of the Lord and all the chambers around of the treasuries of the house of God, of the treasuries for the dedicated things, for the division of the priests and the Levites, for all the work of the service of the house of the Lord and for all the articles of service in the house of the Lord. He gave gold by weight for things of gold. All articles used in every kind of service. Articles of silver for things by weight for all articles used in every kind of service. The weight for the lampstands of gold and their lamps of gold by I wait for each. He goes through this whole thing. Finally, to get to verse 19, for sake of time, we're just going to go right to verse 19. All this, said David, the Lord made me understand in writing by his hand upon me all the works of these plans. These plans. So everything is there by design that we're reading here in Revelation chapter 4. This throne room, it was a model of the heavenly things. Finally, one other verse. Let me just read this to you, but it's Hebrews chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. The apostle speaking concerning Jesus says, For if he, Jesus, were on the earth, he would not be a priest, since there are Priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve, notice, the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he set about to make the tabernacle, for he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you in the mountain. How lovely. I really love that. Is God a God of order, or is he just kind of winging it? Did he just wind up the universe and kind of stepped away and says, ah, you guys will take care of it, I'm out of here. Is that what he did? No, he did not. He's very, he created it all and knew exactly how it all works to its minutia. He knows how it works. He knows how you work. He knows the very thoughts that you're going to think before you even think them. He knows the words that you're going to speak today and tomorrow and next week and next year. He can tell you, if he chose to, you could ask him, Lord, three years from now, should you, tarry on this certain day, at this time, at this second, what word am I going to say? And he'd say, duh. Or The. Or he might be saying, you know what, you're actually asleep at that moment, so I really can't give you a precise answer, but I can tell you what you were dreaming of. See, God knows, and He's he's got everything under control, and everything that we're seeing right now, as much as it rattles us, be encouraged, Saint. It's all happening according to his plan. Everything is on schedule. Does that mean that we should just roll over and act like and just go along with it? no. We resist sin, right? We should always resist sin in our own life. And you are the only thing that's stopping the things in the world from getting further and further along in the process that the world wants them to go. We have to be removed because once we're removed, believe me, the agenda is going to flow forward like you would not believe. But until then, we pray. Until then, We get on our knees and we pray. Until then, we resist in our hearts our own sin and our own life. God doesn't call us to have a militia. God doesn't call us as Christians to amass guns and go out and attack people. He never did that. He had his reasons when he brought the children of Israel into Canaan, but that's a whole different thing. That was a judgment. God's coming again for judgment. Are you ready? You won't be here if you're a Christian. But judgment is coming, and you know what, folks? People need to hear that. Nobody wants to talk about that. I'd much rather talk to them about chapters 4 and 5 and give them this wonderful heavenly vision of heaven. But before they can appreciate that, they have to understand that they need a Savior. They have to understand that there's something inherently wrong with them, and that's sin. I was born a sinner. And I continue to be a sinner. However, I'm saved by grace and the Lord is transforming me. Amen? Is he doing the same for you? Hopefully, if you're a Christian, it's happening. Maybe not as fast as you'd like. And sometimes, isn't it frustrating? Have you ever made the same mistake over and over again? And say, Lord, and now I understand what Paul the Apostle said when he said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Do you ever feel that way or am I the only one? <laughs> yes. I can see we're not going to finish four. (laughs) That's okay. It's our first time together. Things are happening and it's wonderful, isn't it? Do you sense the Lord's peace on your heart? Even though I'm talking about difficult things. Some of them anyway. The Lord loves you. He loves you. He loves you and I. So... Notice at the end of verse 6, there are these four living creatures. It's unfortunate in the King James Version, if you have a King James Version, uh, it, it calls them four living beasts. And it would re- it'd be better to be rendered four living ones, four living ones, or four living creatures. Four living beasts kind of gives it, it makes it sound, uh, gives the impression of, of savagery and maybe even of corruption. But these living creatures, these living beings these four living ones are, 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 are so much more than that. They are glorious before the throne of God, protecting the throne of God, if there ever needs to be protecting. Showing forth the things, the very heart of God and these, these, these creatures, they are one. And God, when he speaks, when he thinks, they execute whatever it is. There's no, there's no debating. I love that. Isn't there something wonderful about good authority? We know that we're not surrounded by good authority all the time, but God uh, blesses us when we submit to that authority, even when we don't like it. But you know what? The authority of God is so much greater than anything. You know, I want to be the kind of person, I want to be the kind of Christian that when God says to do something, I want to just do it. and I I don't want to ask a lot of questions. I do. (laughs) I do ask questions, but it's a place I still need to get to. Maybe you're the same way. I just want to do it. Don't you want to do it? Just when he says to do something, did just say, Lord, I don't understand it. I don't even like it, honestly. But I trust you. Isn't that with Job's heart? He says, though you slay me, yet I will trust you. Though you allow me to go through a lot of pain, Lord. And he used me for some cosmic experiment, which really wasn't something that God was, um, he didn't, uh, it, it wasn't mean on God's part, but he knew the end. He knew Job's ending. He knew everything Job would go through and how at the end he'd be refined and Job would be in a much better place. But the devil and God made a, made a pact, or not a pact, but an agreement. He said to him, you know what? You can touch Job to a certain point. There's limits, devil. There are limits to what you can do. I'll allow it. Because I know something you don't. And the devil's going, what? Because he's not omniscient. The devil doesn't know all things. All the devil knows is that he's got carte blanche to destroy this man's family and to touch his health. And he's thinking, how far will he let me go? Because sometimes the Lord will even allow a person to be destroyed. That's a scary thought, but that's true. So the devil's thinking, I don't care. I just, want to, I just want to go after him. And God says, you can, but there's a limit. You cannot cross that limit. I know the end. I know what's going to happen. And he knows that about you, too. You may be going through a trial, something right now. We've all been going through a trial. It's been a trial of the last, this is going to be the trial of the year. This may be even the trial of the decade. Maybe even the trial of the century for us, what we've been going through. But these four living creatures, they stand before the throne of God. We know that Satan, Lucifer, he was a cherub. It tells us in Ezekiel 28 that he was the anointed cherub who covers something about these cherubim and their, and their, their power. God seems to have an order in the heavens of angels. There is an order, there's a hierarchy, there, there's a, a description, you know, as you read the word of God, you see that there are different levels, different powers, different strengths, something about it, we don't have it all together, but there definitely is these things, and these cherubs were standing before God, and and the devil himself was was a cherub initially. And as we look at these cherubs before the throne of God, it reminds us of the two cherubs that stood over the mercy seat in the Old Testament over the Ark of the Covenant with their wings over and looking down upon the mercy seat where blood would be dropped once to atone for the sin of Israel. Every year on the Day of Atonement, that would happen. And these cherubim would do that. They would cover. And they were full of eyes. Notice that. These were extremely intelligent beings, completely holy, committed, submitted to God. And they certainly portrayed the omniscience of Almighty God, having eyes everywhere. Eyes speak of knowledge. Eyes speak of understanding. And they had eyes all around. Can you imagine being around somebody like that? And the first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. These four living ones could represent the following things. And I'm just going to give you a few things, and we may actually have to, um, uh, let's see here. We may actually need to stop after this. But notice, these four living ones could represent these four things. There's different views of or ideas concerning who these four living creatures are. They could represent Israel in totality. If you remember in Numbers, uh, Numbers chapter 2, you can read that whole thing. That whole chapter, which we won't do, but really what it does is it lays out how the children of Israel, as they were going through the desert, coming out of Egypt, going into the promised land, how they would encamp in the desert. Whenever they would move, they would encamp in this way. And there was on the east side, there was Judah. That was the, the head of, 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 the, of, the, of those that are on the east side as they would go. The, the Levites would be right in the center with the tabernacle. And then the, 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 the tribes, three on this side, three on this side, three on that side, three on that side. And, from the top looking down, you could see, even if you look at the numbers, it actually points, it shows a cross. If you were to go in the Goodyear blimp and fly over the top of this thing, you'd be going, huh, a cross, what does that mean? I'm sure it's there by chance. No, it was there by design. Even in the encamping of Israel in the desert, God was pointing to the cross. Didn't they just encounter that in the Passover before they left? The lentil, the blood going across, and like that, what does it form? A cross. It's pointing toward something. What is it? Ultimately, it's going to be fulfilled in Jesus on the cross. It speaks of death. One would take the place of all of us on that cross. So here they are encamped, four tribes on each side, the Levites being in the center. On the south side, Reuben. Simeon and Gad. On the west side, Ephraim, Manasseh, and Benjamin. On the north side, Dan and Asher and Naphtali. So it could somehow symbolize, and and many believe it's not in the scripture, but many believe that as each of these four different camps, they had banners for each of these four different camps, and they believe that these creatures that we're talking about, the faces, one represents a man, one represents a lion, one represents an eagle, and another one represents an ox, there's, there's evidence, evidently uh, extra-biblical evidence, that that may be the case. But there's also another possibility in that these animals, if you look at them, they're really the federal heads, if you will, of all of the creation. I mean, look at the, look at the, uh, the lion, for instance. He's the greatest of all the wild animals. He's the king of the jungle. Right? Who wants to mess with a lion? He's at the top of the food chain. Unless he gets near an elephant. Elephant can just stomp on him, but you know, the, the, the lion is he's the one everybody's got to do business with. He's the one who's asking for rent and pushing people around and getting their lunch money. Okay? He's the king of the forest, the greatest of all the wild animals. And what about the ox? He's the strongest of all the domesticated animals. He's the strongest, he's the most used, he's at the top. We enjoy his benefits through hamburgers and steak, beef jerky. And this nice Bible with the leather cover. Thank you, Mr. Cow. <laughs> and so, he's the greatest of the domesticated beasts. And what about man? Man is God's workmanship, right? Isn't that what it says for us in Ephesians 2, verse 10? It says, we are his workmanship. We are his poema. We are his masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And what about the eagle? It speaks of the eagle as the noblest of God's birds. Of all the birds, if you could own a bird... Most of you, maybe, maybe you'd have a macaw, or maybe you'd have a parrot, or maybe you would have a parakeet. Me, if I could own a bird, I want a big cage with a bald eagle. And he just he looks at me with those eyes, and he can practically see right through me because his eyesight is so good. He can fly right to the heavens and fly straight toward the sun and then swoop down and be unnoticed and take away vermin and, and carrion. this majestic bird the king of the birds, speaking of Jesus' heavenly origin? Or could these four living creatures speak to us, as some have said, about the Gospels, the four Gospels? We know that Matthew speaks of Jesus being the, the heir to the throne of David, who was the lion of the tribe of Judah, right? Judah is always associated with a lion, the lion of the tribe of Judah, And so Matthew speaks of Jesus being the rightful heir to the throne of David, the king, and it's put forth as a lion. What about the ox? The ox speaks of the gospel of Mark, perhaps. Mark portraying Jesus as the servant of all, the servant of all. What is an ox? The ox is a servant. And Jesus what does it say in Mark chapter 10 verse 45 for even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many that's really the sums up the the book of Mark for you that's really what it's all about Jesus being the servant and what about man it speaks of the gospel of Luke Luke was a physician it speaks of Jesus being the son of man and what about the eagle one of the most greatest the birds flies to the heavens what does it give you a glimpse of the heavens the heavenly realm and what did john portray in his gospel is jesus being the son of god almighty separate from the earth separate from his creation in a class by himself far above it all could it be that it could be it could be all those things and that's okay and the four living creatures, each having six wings, they, they uh, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is to is to come. We will see here and later that there is a reverence and that there is an order uh, in their worship. And when he says, Holy, 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 and most of the, the majority of the texts that are available to us. It actually has holy, holy, holy three times. So three heptads of holy and holy and holy, perhaps ascribing greatness, ascribing worth to these three, these three in one. We serve one God, but they're three in one. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. These living beings, like these living beings, excuse me, we need to worship God intelligently and we need to worship him with passion. You know, I hope at some point we can, I would encourage you to challenge yourself about worship. So often, We can get so timid, and, you know, I look at the worship, and I look at the way the the Hebrews, the Jews, worshipped, and it was beautiful, but there was nothing showy about it. You know, and it doesn't mean that we have to stand up with timbrels and castanets and, and run around the room. We don't have to do that. But I want to ask you, where is the passion? Where is the passion in your worship? Personally and corporately. I love it when we can gather together and we can put our hands together and we can sing loud. I love that. One of my favorite things to do is to go to the Cove in, in uh, Sandy Cove, Maryland and we meet for a pastor's conference. We've been doing it for the last 25 years and every year we go, there's 1,100, 1,200 pastors in a room and there's a worship team. I call them Rob and the Boys. His name's Rob Paletti, wonderful brother. And we sing And we sing loud. People across the Chesapeake can hear us. We sing with our our whole hearts, and I would encourage you to do the same. Not in some kind of fake bravado, right? We don't do anything to just do something. But I want to encourage you, and and, and we'll end with this today. And again, not to leave you with something that's kind of, I, I want to challenge you and encourage you at the same time. Don't let your worship become dull. Don't let it become mundane and just kind of like, oh, that song again. You know what? A true worshiper can sing the same song every single day and have the same amount of vigor and vitality and excitement and exuberance. I would encourage you, let's pray about this as a, as a family, to really worship Jesus Christ Again, we can't make this stuff up. We can't engineer something. And that's not what I'm saying. We have to be genuine. But let's get excited about who God is again. I want to get excited about who God is again. Because you know what? As we read these two chapters, and I read about these symbols and these similes and these things that they're trying to describe with language, it blasts me out of orbit. And I don't want to think on earth when I read these chapters, I don't want to think like this when I'm worshiping God. i got to get out of my own box. i got to get out of the box that I put God I put God in a box. Have you ever put God in a box? We do it. I've done it. I like him in the box because I can control him. I can say, here's the limit of what I'm going to allow you to do, Lord. And you know, he's so wonderful and gracious to say, you know what? If that's as far as you want to go with me, I'll, get, I'll take you that far. Because I'm not going to do something against your will. I'm not going to force you to do anything, because that's not worship. So we can never do this by force. We can never do this by even the suggestion. I would just examine, ask you to examine your heart this week and say, Lord, next time we get together, I want to be done with my inhibition. Maybe you don't have a good voice. It doesn't matter. There was a woman many years ago who used to fellowship with us. She was the loudest singer in the whole church and she couldn't hold a single tone. But you know what? I'd rather have a room full of women like that. A room full of people like that who cannot sing their way out of a wet paper sack with a knife. (laughs) A wet paper sack that's been wet for a couple days. You can poke your finger through it. It almost comes apart by itself. I'd rather have a room full of people who can't sing at all and are just trying to keep up with the worship leader than anything else. And you know what? I think God does too. So don't be be inhibited by how you can sing, what you can sing, how good you sing. It really doesn't matter. Let's get beyond all that. I pray that we would all grow in that because something needs to change in my heart. And I would lovingly ask you just to examine yours. Say, Lord, where have I gone? Why Why? why is it that I no longer can express that? And it's not just singing. I would encourage you to worship him in every area of your life, no matter what it is. In your giving, give sacrificially. In, in your life and service, give sacrificially in your service to him. Whatever it is, do it as holy as unto him. In all things, do it unto him. Not to a movement, not to a person. We do it for him alone, Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's stand and let's pray. Lord, we're going to be in chapter 4 another week. But Lord, I know that you have spoken today. I'm confident of that. I'm, I'm confident that you've broken my own heart and are breaking it. Lord, I pray that you'd bless my brothers and sisters. I pray that they would know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, your great love for them. I pray that they would know that there's nothing good within us that I can do to earn your favor, Lord. In Christ, we already have your favor, but now it's re- just responding to you, Lord, responding because of what you've already done, Lord. We can't, all we can do is heap praise. As we look at these, these, these four creatures and these 24 elders and these angels, just giving it. Lord, I want to be that person. Would you make us all that kind of person? We give it all to you. Whatever it is, whatever it is, help us to give it all to you, Lord, and, and let you work all of the details. You're much better at it than we are. You know it all, Father. And so, Lord, we simply exalt you this morning. We want to be encouraged as we read. We want to let our hearts be raptured again by, this, by the things that we see. And we know that these are just symbols. They're not even the reality. The reality is so much greater than all of this. Lord, it ought to just blast us off. That rocket that we saw recently go up into the sky just a few weeks ago, a week and a half ago, Lord, may our hearts take off even with more splendor and more glory than that thing I'd ever imagined. Help us, Lord. You know the age we live in, but we don't want to roll over and succumb to the age that we live in, God. Set us on fire again, Jesus. Revive your church. Revive me, God. And thank you so much for bringing us together. Lord, we've longed for this for months. We've been longing for this, Lord, and we thank you that you've met with us today. Thank you that you will continue to meet with us because you're a great and loving Heavenly Father and so thankful that you love us. So thankful for the blood of Jesus Christ. So thankful for each other, God. Thank you for every single person here, God. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.